Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Is there any way you can stop doing that? For the millionth time, no. I am a South American manfish. I have gills. Under those gills, I have spongy tissue. Under the spongy tissue, I have a viscous membrane. If I don't occasionally clear the spongy tissue, I will expire. You knew that when we started living together a year ago. You didn't make it really clear how loud it would be. I didn't make something clear? You had me under the impression that you couldn't speak at all. So now it's a bad thing? That I can actually talk? I didn't say that. Mm, You implied it. You could apologize. You never apologize. It's not part of my culture. Here we go again with the fish thing I could never possibly understand. Why are we fighting? I know. You're right. We're so lucky just to be together. Do you want to, you know, have some makeup sexy time with your fishy-wishy? Ew, you guys are so disgusting. Okay, that's another thing. You did not tell me that you had a teenage daughter. Who's throwing up in her mouth for realsies. Chloe, what did I say about that kind of talk? Dad, you are so weird and so random. I don't even want to be here. My friends are like, in this really cool river? It's only every other weekend. And Eliza is in my life right now. I want you to get to know each other. And I want to barf up a cat I just ate. Dad, you are such a loser. You're such a dork. Chloe, now is not the time. Whatevs. I'm going for a swim. Why don't you visit with your super dry girlfriend? Wow, she stresses me out. Can you get my inhaler? Audience, I am really sorry you had to hear all that. While Fishman and I work on our relationship, here's the nose talking about the shape of water and call me by your name. And now he wore his Norwegian curling pants to work. Colin McEnroe. I did. I get really excited about the Winter Olympics. Olympics, so I, I couldn't. I could not wear my curling pants. Curling pants are a thing, by the way. They are. They are. Well, never mind. This isn't even what we're talking about today. Well, and first of all, we're talking to Rebecca Castellani, uh, Entertainment Director at Bridge Street Live uh, in Collinsville, Connecticut. Uh, Jim Chapdelaine, an Emmy Award-winning musician, producer, composer, and recording engineer, and a patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Jacques Lamar is a playwright and director of client services at Buzz Engine. Uh, so what did we do this week? Well, first of all, we went to two movies. We're going to talk about those in the second and third segments. They are respectively Call Me By Your Name, the lush, uh, epic, r- romantic movie about uh, a, an affair between uh, two young men in Italy uh, in the 1980s, uh, and then The Shape of Water, uh, Guillermo del Toro's. I don't even know how to describe it. Well, you just heard the intro. It's about uh, a human aquatic romance. Uh, and maybe more than that. We'll, we'll come to that. Uh, but f- for starters here, we're going to begin with a, um, an, an interview that has gone viral. It's actually two interviews, but I think the one in New York Magazine is the one that has gone extremely viral. Uh, it is an interview with Quincy Jones. He is 85 years uh, old now. He has worked with absolutely everybody. And just to sort of set the stage for you, here's Stephen Colbert. Quincy Jones claimed that Marlon Brando had sex with Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye. <laughs> The only thing I can say to that is, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Oh, what's going on? 
Thank you very much. Thank you, you very much. Bread. You gotta get the bread. Jones says that Marlon Brando also slept with author James Baldwin, adding that Brando would quote anything, anything. <laughs> mailbox. <laughs> now Jones' story was then confirmed by Richard Pryor's widow, who says her husband was always very open about his bisexuality with friends, adding, "It was the '70s. Drugs were still good, especially quaaludes. If you did enough cocaine, you a radiator and send it flowers in the morning." Hey, hey, I'm so sorry, John. I'm so sorry. A radiator, wow. I hope the mailbox didn't find out. All right, that is perhaps the most incendiary thing that Quincy Jones says uh, in this interview. But he says an awful lot of other things, including that he knows who killed Kennedy, uh, that Michael Jackson uh, stole uh, music from other musicians, that the Beatles were lousy musicians. I think I'm probably skipping a few things. <laughs> I mean, really, there's... Ivanka Trump. Oh, he, that's oh, right. Yeah. He, said, he said, basically said that the president is a moron, but that he had dated, uh, very happily, one sensed uh, Ivanka Trump. Um, all right. So I guess, Rebecca, the first question that I have is, I mean, we could look at this piece of text a number of different ways. It could be Quincy Jones, for once, being a person who, in one of these interviews, really speaks his mind and doesn't pull any punches and doesn't hold back. Or we could think Quincy Jones is losing it. Uh, or we could think this is sort of a piece of postmodern something, you know, that it could be looked at, looked at as sort of a melding of fiction and fact. I don't know. What should we do with, with what we've been handed here? I think the truth is probably an amalgam of all three of those things. I think that he is a lot sharper than a lot of people are giving him credit for. I think that the he's very articulate throughout all the interviews, including his favorite expletive, which he uses in so many different varieties. I've never heard anyone use the MF word so colorfully and in so many different contexts. Um, but I do, I think he's definitely, I mean, he's 85, so he's not, you know, a spring chicken anymore. But I do think there's a tone to him kind of saying, you know, I'm, I'm 85. What do I have got to lose at this point? I've had an amazing career. I've worked with everybody in the industry. Might as well share some of these stories while he's still alive. Yeah, I mean, Jim, the musical stuff that he says, some of it's controversial, some of it's a little bit of a crabby old man complaining about the kids in his yard, nothing sounds all that good to him, although then he can rattle off the names of basically everybody who's popular right now who sound okay. But when he's talking about stuff, like when he's, when he's criticizing Ringo Starr, whom I've talked to a lot of drummers who actually think Ringo Starr is a pretty good drummer, but he doesn't do it in a very vague way. He's very specific uh, in his anecdote and in other names. I don't know, what did, what did you make of like Quincy Jones music legend suddenly having a whole bunch of weird opinions about music. It, it struck me as the, um, much like the interview. It could be there, – there's like four interviews in here. One was like a really smart guy who's done a lot of stuff. One – the other side of that is like this guy is out of his mind. So on the one hand, he's quoting uh, – he's talking about Nicholas Slabinski's thesaurus of musical scales and phrases, which was sort of a Bible for jazz musicians in the 50s. And I, I dare say I have a copy that I last opened in July of 1978, I think. <laughs> um, and I probably will never open it again. But to sort of – so he's correct in sort of the way he sort of parses out jazz music as being a high art form. But to say the Beatles are lousy musicians or to say that Ringo is bad, sorry, that, that, that argument is over. Ringo is good. Mm. Ringo swung. So you would think he would like him. He, the Beatles didn't have chops I think is essentially what he's saying but he's not very articulate about saying it. If you think about Quincy Jones's uh, composer catalog – 
I would challenge you to whistle any number of tunes that he's written. I don't think many of us can. There's a few maybe. But you could whistle a lot of Beatles songs. Um, so that speaks to like they're really not bad musicians. They're different kinds of musicians. So I thought it was a little crazy to go down that part of the highway. He sort of backs out a little bit, but he did go there. Um, just because I made the musician talk about the musician part of it, that doesn't mean I'm going to make you talk about the mailbox part of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but please do. Yeah, please. No, he's saving his powder for the for right, the peach, right. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Although that was know. really you, interesting yeah. to hear about Marlon Brando. Yeah. And or Richard and, Pryor. Uh, yeah, but I mean, also that you know, uh, well, I mean, he basically said that if it moved, Marlon was going after it, and then, then the three people he cites are all black men, which I think is really kind of fascinating. Well, we know that Marlon had an obsessive interest in Polynesian women, basically Polynesian and Asian women. It's almost difficult to imagine him finding time in his schedule to and have quarter sex pounders with, with cheese. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was trying to visualize what he would have looked like at that point in his. His life. You don't. You don't happen to have a mailbox, do you? <laughs> just, you just throw it over the fence. Maybe throw it over the fence. <laughs> Maybe a radiator. Show me where your radiator is located. <laughs> um, I, the, the other thing that he does, like, there's so many things that have sort of gone viral out of this, including uh, when he gets done sta- saying this completely. Uh, I mean, one thing about that, the Marlon Brando thing, is there's just no groundwork laid, usually laid for it anywhere in, like, usually when somebody says something like that about some, a celebrity who's been dead for a while, you know something that's kind of like it. I've never heard anything like that <laughs> about Marlon Brando or any of those people. Um, I mean, I guess the prior thing, although his daughter denies it, it just seems like so out of left field. There's just no, you know. Oh, his daughter's denying it now? His daughter's, his ex-wife says yes, his daughter's saying no. If you go to New York Magazine, uh, among, you know on the right-hand side they have the most read things? Uh, four of the top five most read things are just this interview and then just various <laughs> responses to it. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> well, I, mean, I have to say, I actually, I started not cross-checking things that he had st- said, and although we, we were talking uh, before about, you know, Richard Pryor's widow comes out and says, oh, yeah. And T-Pain, he talks about the rappers doing a, a tribute album, uh, which he was not happy with the results. And he mm. singles out T-Pain as doing a particularly bad job. And T-Pain tweets and he's like, yeah, not my best work. And I was like, all right. So, you know, people aren't necessarily coming out and denying it, I guess, although maybe they are. Uh, but what I found fascinating was I started looking at at some of the musical references that he was making mm-hmm. and going to Tidal and listening to Coltrane mm-hmm. and listening to the Donna Summer song that he believes Michael Jackson ripped off. Mm-hmm. And did you do the same yeah, thing? I did, yeah. It doesn't sound a thing like no. Billy Jean. <laughs> uh, but I mean, the thing is, it was, you know, it made me want to actually, you know, learn more. That Even as, as crazy as the interview seemed, A, I was like, wow, I, you know, you forget that his the scope of his oh, career. That's a brilliant marketing yeah. tactic, if nothing else. I mean, yeah. everyone's talking about it. Yeah. Jim almost reopened that book. Um, <laughs> I may. But, I may still. Yeah. Was oh, so, this his autobiography? No, no. no. Slonimsky's Slim, S- uh, oh, oh, oh. musical scales of phrases. Uh, now so, I want to read his autobiography. I feel yeah, like. Yeah. I think this is maybe genius. You just struck on it, the whole point of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is, you know, there's one, one of the very odd discursive things about this, which has independently gone viral, is when he says what I think is the most outrageous 
thing, which is the Marlon Brando thing. Although it has plenty of competition. You don't think the Kennedy I mean, thing? He's, he's, well, like, well, the well, factual. Like, just, I'm just going to leave this here <laughs> as a fact. I know this. Well, Stephen Colbert pointed out his next line there was. I, I, we probably shouldn't talk about this publicly. Yeah, but you, yeah, yeah, but you just he did, did that a couple times. He went up to something. He said the same thing with the Clintons. Oh, I can't talk about that. Or Cosby, but, <laughs> but she's got some secrets. Or Cosby. Yeah. And he we gets, can't talk about that here. Yeah, it was, that was. But a I funny... can tell you about Marlon Brando here. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm told that we do. We actually have a heart out here. Where I, okay, then uh, then we better get out. We're gonna come come back. I don't know what's happening. Actually, I'm confused. <laughs> but we will come back. I mean, at some point we'll come back. Like this. And we are back. This is the news. We are talking about all kinds of things today uh, with Rebecca Castellani and Jim Chapdelaine and Jacques Lamar. Um, let me just quickly say, just I want to button something onto the final bit of the conversation we were having before about the Quincy Jones interview, just because a whole bunch of things on the rest of this show and in your life in general may not make sense unless you know it, which is that after he makes his most outrageous claim, the one about Marlon Brando, he says without really breaking stride, at least, to read in the edited text. Uh, he says, do you like Brazilian music? So he says, like, this whole incredible thing, and then he just, do you like Brazilian music? And that has kind of turned into a meme out there on Twitter. People are posting all kinds of outrageous things and, and saying, do you like Brazilian music? So, I mean, if you run into that, that's where it comes from. I guess the, I, I'm doing that to help you. Uh, and I went and listened to Brazilian music after I read that, listened to Gil, Gil, Gil you, you, did a lot of, you did a lot of post-Quincy. Yeah, uh, I was inspired by, by his brain dump. Well, we'll come back to that at uh, the, at the end of the show. But right now we're talking about Call Me By Your Name. It has four Oscar nominations. It is, in fact, the story set in the 1980s uh, of uh, two young men, one of them uh, I think uh, around tw- – I think we know their ages. They're like 21 and 17. Uh, Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet, I'm going to say. I'm not really sure uh, how to say his name. Uh, and it is the, the, it takes place in a sumptuous uh, Italian residence uh, in a pretty little uh, – look, looks like very northern Italian town. Um, and uh, it is about two young men who come together. Uh, and it's – well, I don't know. I'll just sort of stop it there. Maybe we'll just start the conversation around the table. I mean, Jacques, what was this movie to you uh, and, and, and how do you assess it? Um, you know, I was um – I wasn't super excited about going to see the movie and I don't know know why. Um, but I went and it works kind of certain unexpected magic on you. And when I left, I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. But I thought about it quite a bit. And then I went back knowing that we were going to be talking about it and wanted to um, kind of see it again, have it really fresh in my memory. And I really loved it the second time. There was a lot of more kind of subtlety revealed to me. Um, I think I was in probably a better frame of mind. And as um, as a gay man uh, who grew up in the 80s and as uh, a gay man who, who uh, was in Italy um, when really uh, became much more sort of not aware of my sexuality but, but – uh, acted upon it. Um, you know, it, there was a lot on a personal level that I connected with in this in terms of that that first person that you really kind of realize that you sort of love and you're attracted to. And I think that's actually a universal um, in the story. And then um, I'm not going to kind of get into 
the sort of one what I feel is like sort of the climactic scene at the end of the the film, but it was extremely resonant for me. I don't know how much you want to talk about that or if that's a spoiler. But. Well, I, I, uh, yeah, maybe there actually are sort of several climactic scenes towards the end of the movie. So I, I think we can sort of dance around them in a way that's helpful. I mean, you know, you know, one thing that I I think Jim, you and I had a similar reaction, which is that uh, this uh, director Luca Guadagnino, uh, he's he loves the Italian landscape. He's directed two other movies that kind of really, um, you know, enjoy uh, this very. For it's almost like it's cheating, you know. I mean, because everything's so beautiful and gorgeous and draped in 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 sunlight and. Um, uh, surrounded by delicious things to eat and stuff like that, that you are kind of happy. Uh, although I think you and I may have had the same reaction, which is at a certain point we realized that we'd been watching this movie for a really long time and not that much had happened except that these two guys had come together, which we always knew was going to happen anyway. There's uh, a lot of stretching. A lot of people <laughs> stretched in this movie. Well, um, that's recommended, right? Yeah, yeah. right, right. So yeah, I, I liked this movie. The weird thing about this movie, uh, as opposed to the other movie we'll talk about, is I liked this movie more after I saw it than during I saw it. And I kept wondering why. Um, was like the gay part of it making me uncomfortable? I don't think so, but I want to challenge myself to, to think about that. Um, it's so beautifully shot. Everybody in it is pretty much perfect and attractive in some way. And they have amazing food and servants and uh, beautiful. So it's really a super first world problem. And but after that, it's really compelling. The, the kid, uh, I'm going to call him Timothy. Uh, Shalma is an incredible actor and and very compelling. Uh, I I didn't get that from Army Hammer for a while until later on. So so the middle third of this movie was a little sleepy for me. Like, let can we please have something happen? But I, I respect the, the director. I I got a little impatient, and then by the end, I thought. Wow, that was the the end. Is the last twenty five minutes are great, right? There's a there there's a very specific moment for me where I'm I was officially tired of this movie and ready for it to end, <laughs> and then a whole bunch of other things happened. And, and I thought it was ending two yeah. or three times. Right. I thought like, well, that was good. That <laughs> yeah. was good. So things do happen at the end that are very rewarding. Uh, I guess maybe we shouldn't spoil too much, although. Uh, we are going to have to talk a, a little bit uh, about uh, the man who plays the father who ultimately uh, has a very important thing to do uh, in this movie. But I don't, Rebecca, I don't know. I'll just let you react on, on any level you want to yeah. react. I mean, I think that this was really interesting to see these two movies together this way because they're both very charming but in very different ways. I think that this idea that as you're watching Call Me By Your Name, it, it is a long movie. I was certainly aware halfway through, okay, it's long. I checked my watch. I said, okay, we got another hour to go. <laughs> Like, something's got to happen now. But when I got in the car afterwards, and, and the last 25 minutes are perfection, but driving home, the discussion that followed the movie and then my feelings following it today, thinking I just saw it on Thursday, it does kind of change as your relationship with it goes on and you think about it. I'd love to see it again and see if my reaction would change as, as Jacques did. Whereas Shape of Water felt a little bit more like you were enjoying that in the moment itself. I didn't check my watch during that movie. That felt like it was exactly the right amount of time. Whereas Call Me By Your Name felt more like a, an experience that you're going through with them and it's less film that it is something that you're acti- you're invited to participate in in some oblique way. And that's that's sort of how I came away from both of those films. It's interesting because um, I, I when I saw it with my husband, I was like, you know, snip, snip. That could have been yeah. <laughs> you know, at least 15 yeah, yeah, minutes shorter. And he's like, 
you're kind of experiencing summer the way this kid would have experienced yes. summer. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, and summer in Italy is yeah. summer in Italy is slow. It's yeah. dead. There's nothing going on, and so this intrusion of Army Hammer, yeah, suddenly like uh, gives drama to what would have been an otherwise. You know, uh, so I mean, I don't know if that was a purposeful choice on the on the part of the director, but I was like, oh yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's got a very languid feel to it. Yeah. yeah, and when he when when Army Hammer's like, you know, I'll see you at midnight, and he is doing nothing but checking his watch yeah. for like ten fifteen minutes of the film. He's like every few, you know, you 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 are seeing you're living it sort of somewhat in real time. Yeah. So that might speak to some one thing that I was feeling. Despite this beautiful photography and everything, I was I started to feel anxious yes. because I'm like I, I couldn't tell why. Is it what this what Timothy is going through? Is it his anxiety transferring? Because why would you be anxious in this beautiful setting with parents who love you unconditionally? Um, but but actually hearing you talk about the watch and the Italian summer and stuff, that maybe that explains it. I, I the passage he, of time well, is sort I, of real. Some of it might be cultural conditioning. Kion Wolf made a very good point as we were kind of talking this through, which is that we've grown up or, or we've been through decades of watching movies uh, in which two gay characters ultimately are, are ripped apart in some often you know, almost violently uh, or emotionally destructive way. I mean that's the kind of movie that we know about and this ultimately – And their parents are disapproving. Right. And this is a slightly different yeah. kind of movie. I, I felt anxiety like Jim's describing but not for one second did I feel like this was the general anxiety you attend to most gay love stories with, which something tragic is going to happen. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to yeah, freak well, out. No, not at all. I never felt worried about that. The Anxiety I felt was this anxiety of a potentially unrequited love when he's clearly crushing on beautiful Army Hammer and's not sure where Army Hammer stays. We can all relate to that feeling, and I think that that's where the movie excels. It, it's it could be a story about a woman and a fish, and it would still <laughs> you know maybe he was sort of I don't know how much he was struggling with whether he was gay or not. Yeah, I don't think that really I couldn't mattered. tell if that because and and at the end I'm not even sure he was gay. Right, um, right. I, I think I think well, there's there's a whole conversation going on in front of me between Jonathan McNichol and Kyan Wolf about this topic on my computer as you and I are talking. So, <laughs> and, and that is an uh, an interesting question from this. We should say that although this movie is steeped in seriousness in some of the ways that we're suggesting, it's also steeped in the fun of being young in the summertime in Italy and enjoying uh, all the you should pardon the expression uh, fruits uh, of summer. Uh, there is a fruit that's maybe enjoyed a little bit more than was good. For, we're not going to tell you about that. You'll just have to discover it on your own. And there are some little <laughs> mysteries here. There are some fun, kitschy little mysteries. And a J- do you know about the James Woods feud too? No. The James Woods had a real but problem. he's feuding with the whole world. Yes, he is. But so actor James Woods had a problem and he felt as though the Army Hammer character was too much older than the Timothy Chalamet character that. and he tweeted, <laughs> tweeted hashtag Nambla and all this kind of stuff. Whereupon Army Hammer and everybody else in the world started pointing out all the weird, creepy sexual relationships that James Woods has had and how he's hit on 16-year-old <laughs> like girls. Right, right. And, as you know, a 60-year-old. One of them who turned out to be Amber Tamblyn, who he's has a memory of – Yeah, so anyway, there's sort of like a lot of little sort of subdrama going on. And then there's the extremely confusing question of the flies. We have to talk about yes. the flies. Wow. Okay, so there are flies all the way through – <laughs> there are flies all the way through this movie, including a final scene which takes place in the winter. And there's a fly who, like, could probably be up for best supporting actor. The fly is like in the yeah, shot so long. In. Yeah, but you the know. flies are sort of singular characters. It's not like this is a not like a bunch flies of flies humming around. It's just a single fly here and there that's dropping in. 
to, to say, hey, I think I'm not, I'm not sure what the message is. <laughs> but that, the winter fly, I couldn't winter figure fly. out, like, how does the winter fly? Winter fly is like, the winter fly is like left shark or something. It's yeah. Like, yeah. It's like, you know, this fly that really is kind of having a moment. Uh, well, anyways, so John McGarvey, I'll say his name, uh, asked me, demanded, we were at the gym, and we each other, he demanded to know from me what, what the flies mean. And I said, oh, I don't think they mean anything. I think they just happen to be a bunch of flies around. He went, no, they mean something. So so that I don't have to face John McGarvey unarmed in the future. Somebody come up with you. Come on, you're the literature. You're I have the a theory. Star. Okay, good. So, and this is a little bit based on my experiences in Italy. I've been very lucky to spend um, a, a couple summers there. And both times, the places I stayed were the same sort of, not by any means as beautiful as the house in Call Me By Your Name, but the same structure where there's no concrete doors and windows. There's lots of spaces where everything is open. And I feel like by letting the flies into the house, you're kind of bleeding the natural world in with the inside world. So usually we close all the windows and doors and we keep our rooms pure from nature. And there's that repression inherent in that, whereas in the Italian households, nature kind of wafts in and out of the rooms, bringing itself with it. And there's this idea in my mind that the natural connection between people is is unspoiled by convention and expectation that you would maybe see in a more Western household. Uh, all good. But how do you explain the fly in winter? Same deal. Just really? Cool. Where would a fly be doing outside in winter? It's cold. Dead, <laughs> I think, right? He stayed in the house the whole time. He never winter, left. Flies they, mostly dead. They hibernate in their fly cage. Right, right. Um, or maybe they woke up to welcome the family back. A right. fly in winter is like fly, it, the yeah, remake that's of a, a Sean lion Connery movie. Yeah, exactly. Jock, I'm so afraid to ask you uh, for your theories well, about the flies. Well, part of the reason I went back the second time was specifically <laughs> to for watch the for the flies. And they're not as necessarily as pervasive as... as you may have been led to believe, but they people have written articles about mm-hmm. about the fly uh, or flies. I don't know if it's more than one fly. Um, they're not it's properly hard to get credited. a really good acting fly. So yeah. it's probably one fly. And the thing There's is, a lot I, of agents who won't, won't work right. with flies. When I when I saw it the first time, that fly in the in the final shot, and the shot is a long yes. still shot, and so you know the camera's not moving. The actor's barely moving. The only thing that's really moving is that darn fly. And you're sitting there going, what is it? Now, I didn't necessarily stop and think, what does it mean? I just, I was like, why didn't they retake that shot? It's distracting, right? It's very but it's distracting. it's got to be intentional. And so I, when I watch, watched again, the first time you see a fly in the movie is when he goes to self-gratify yes. and it lands right on his crotch. Yep. And so I kind of, I feel like they're that it's sort of like this affair had the lifespan of a fly. Ooh, that's good. Like that. All right, so we have some good working hypotheses. Uh, We're going to have to sort of bridge from this movie to the other. All I can say uh, at the end, uh, in the last analysis, T.S. Eliot famously said, do Do I I dare dare eat a peach? peach. Uh, This (laughs) line will have new meaning to you uh, after you watch Call Me By Your Name. The other way to bridge from this movie uh, to the next one is to say the name Michael Stuhlbarg, uh, if that's how you say his name. And he is in both of those movies and lots of other movies these days besides, including The Post. He's in three <laughs> Best Picture Oscar-nominated movies. Uh, he, he does have um, a, a remarkable role to play, I think, in Call Me By Your Name. And I guess sort of a remarkable role to play in, in uh, The Shape of Water too, Not right? dissimilar. Yeah. Not completely dissimilar. He's, it's true. You know? Yeah. 
I don't know. Can we? I guess. Well, well, let's set up the Shape of Water. All right. So the Shape of Water uh, takes place in the 1950s, a very evocatively, dreamily Guillermo del Toro version of the 1950s. Um, a young woman, uh, played by Sally Hawkins, uh, who does who can hear but not speak, uh, is working in some kind of weird facility where, in fact, the U.S. government is studying a man fish uh, who has been plucked from the waters of some South American river or something, um, uh, and. And Octavia Spencer is around there to be kind of uh, helpful to her friend, played by Sally Hawkins. And Michael Shannon is around, too, in a really kind of 1950s way, uh, torture and pick on this particular creature with a cattle prod. Um, keep in mind the 1950s was sort of the real early stirrings of the civil rights movement where people were being picked on with things like cattle prods. So, um, so I don't know. I've set the stage. Who wants to go first? Rebecca, you go first. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, again, I think that both these movies have a distinct sense of charm that you feel when you're watching them, whereas unlike Call Me Maybe, Call Me Maybe. <laughs> 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 call Me sequel. by Your Name. I'm sorry, Carly Lloyd Jepsen. Um, I, I felt like this was a movie you could enjoy very much in the moment. It didn't require too much thought, too much participation. You could really just sit and enjoy it and enjoy some really, really wonderful acting performances. I hope Sally Hawkins wins Best Actress. She did a phenomenal job um, as a mute woman who falls in love with this sexy sea creature. Um, and I think for that reason, it probably is a more enjoyable film start to finish. Is it, it doesn't require as much self-searching angst as Call Me By Your Name did. Um, but I, I think it was really beautiful. I thought the sound was fantastic. The, the scoring of the film was beautiful. The, f- the cinematography was beautiful. It was wonderful. All right. So before we go any further, unfortunately, we cannot play you an audio clip of um, Sally Hawkins because she never speaks during the movie. Uh, but uh, she's in this scene. She and her friend Zelda, played by Octavia Spencer, are cleaning a men's room uh, in this facility where they work. Michael Shannon, who, in a big surprise, uh, a real sort of shift in his career, plays the villain uh, in this movie. Uh, anyway, you'll hear also hear Michael Shannon. He plays a character named Strickland. Look, some of the best minds in the country peeing all over the floor in this here facility. Mm, mm, mm. There's pee freckles on the ceiling now. How'd they get it up there? Just how big a target do they need, you figure? And get enough practice, that's for sure. My Brewster, no one's ever called him a great mind, but even he manages to hit the can 7% of the time. <laughs> Excuse us, sir. No, no, no. That's all right. Go ahead. You ladies seem to be chatting enjoyably. Girl talk, no doubt. Don't mind me. Ominous whistling and zipping up by Michael <laughs> Shannon. If there's any justice in the world, the term pee freckles uh, will catch on. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, one thing we should say that, uh, Jim, is that though I think that this movie does have some of the more obvious conventions of romance and it's obviously based a lot on Beauty and the Beast. People keep calling it Beauty and the Beast meets Creature of the Black Lagoon or you know, some other overlays like that. It's also like, I don't know, there's like a cat 
who meets a pretty violent end. And Michael Shannon spends most of the movie with his fingers rotting. Yeah. Um, so it's, well, well, unlike the previous movie, <clears throat> which doesn't really have good and bad people in it, it has mostly good people yeah. just trying to figure something out. This has clearly good and bad people. And, and so we don't have to do that work very much because he's letting us know pretty much. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of redemption, although you might say that uh, Michael Stro- Stuhlbarg. Stuhlbarg. Stuhlbarg's uh, character sort of evolves, uh, I think, unless he was already there and we're just seeing it happen. Um, but it is – I would agree with uh, Rebecca. You enjoy it as it's happening and you're fully enveloped by it. I didn't have to go away and think about it and figure anything out, although I did think about it a lot. <clears throat> um, and now I forget your original question. <laughs> Me and, too. It doesn't matter. So Jock should say something. <laughs> I – you know, one of the you – know, my husband had to be not dragged to it, but I think it took Oscar nominations for him to want to see it. And he's like, you know, I don't, I don't normally like action movies. I don't normally like horror movies or what have you. I'm like, well, it's not really either of those. But, you know, it's – it's hard to call it a fantasy, even though it's a fantasy. It's a yeah. romance, it's a but there's, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it it's, it's an, hard to in, call it science fiction, but it is science fiction. Yeah, it's a German it, fairy tale. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before uh, Disney gets yeah. to it, and so I mean, I because I was sitting there thinking like, oh, this you know the coloring and the sort of the charming nature of of her life is reminding me of Amelie. Yes, mm-hmm. and then you know you're in the the government. Uh, you know, laboratories and and it's suddenly not Amelie anymore. It's, you know, it's you're kind of weirding into Spielberg land in a way. And, and um, you know, I, uh, I like Guillermo del Toro, but I did not really like his last film, which was Crimson Peak, right? Yes, was yes. The, Crimson Peak. And I mean, I, I was so excited to see that movie because all the ads looked amazing. But once you went, it was just a movie that looked amazing. Right. Crimson Peak is a movie about his affection for the gothic genre and all of its conventions as opposed to a movie that really, I think, completely works as a movie. And, yeah. And before that was Pacific Rim, yeah. which is like on a whole other level of those ones. <laughs> that was sort of an odd Yeah, choice. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I find it very strange that he did that. Yeah. We, we should say that, uh, you know, first of all, this movie is, I think, m- mostly regarded as in, in leading the pack right now for the Best Picture Award uh, to those people who try to game that out a little bit. Uh, Del Toro uh, was also seen to be leading the pack for maybe Best Director. Um, and I think if that were to happen, uh, that would mean that in four of the last five years, a Mexican director had w- wins the Best Director. So, Interesting. Uh, um, Need a wall, I think. <laughs> so uh, that's right. <laughs> so I, you know, I, one thing that I would say is the way that you could attack this movie is the way that my friend David Edelstein, who didn't like it very much, attacked it, is that it kind of stacks the deck. In fact, I'll read a little bit of David. Um, I should mention that the lo- – well, I just made it just disappear from the screen. But he basically says that it's got that kind of lovable heroine uh, with the spunky, plucky, black best friend who's constantly complaining about her good-for-nothing husband, you know, and then this kind of really terrible disgusting villain and in all the ways that you guys are saying that there isn't a lot of work for your brain to do the the deck is kind of stacked uh, in a particular way to say nothing of the endearing uh, and somewhat um, uh, needy gay artist who's the other plucky best friend (laughs) Under, it's an underdog, <laughs> yes. squad of underdogs. Yeah, squad of underdogs rescue this other underdog. 
And I think what redeems this, first of all, is the visually imagined universe of this yes. movie, which is it really doesn't look like anything, you know? I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro's version of the 1950s, but it doesn't really look like the 1950s. It looks no, like something else. Sometimes it has like a Jules Verne's or a steampunky look to it, yeah. and right. sometimes it's more evocative of the 30s than the 50s or 60s. It felt like it was occurring w- without a sense of time. I mm-hmm. felt like it was a story, like you would read a story to someone, and that story changes, you know, depending on when it's being read, at, at what year, mm-hmm. and to what age. I felt like it kind of had that nebulous mm-hmm. sense of time. I and think the, the 60s are the future yeah. in this, and yeah. very much the future. We don't go much beyond that in imagining the future, and the past is is a very different past. That so the, the past is seems safer almost yeah. for these people. I think the right? other thing that redeems is the Sally. Oh, yeah, she is amazing. Right. I mean, she Sally Hawkins is just it's an amazing performance. She doesn't speak. She injects it, Rebecca and I were saying before the show started, with a sensuality we don't associate with her other roles. But it's an opulent sexuality uh, and sensuality. Um, It's a performance that really kind of, you know, I don't know. I think she should win Best Actress. But you say say the category is crowded. Well, I think that's the best category this year is Best Actress. I mean, if you look at Margot Robbie and Mm. Frances McDormand and Meryl Streep, I mean, she's a perennial, but I really felt like like her performance was wonderful in the po- in the post, and we don't agree on that, Colin. No, uh, and uh, and I can't remember her name, but from Sir Lady Bird, I mean, it's a real. To me, it's the best category this year. It's a good yeah. category. Uh, and um, uh, but I I do have to say I have a uh, a friend who went to see it, and she could not get past. <laughs> The uh, human on non-human. <laughs> uh, I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. let's just say a fish-like creature receives the same fate, fate that a peach does so. uh, in, in the other movie. And and uh, you know, she could not get past it. it well, was like, like a, like a consent like, thing? Like, no, uh, no, just like. Grow out. Okay. Ew. Yeah. Theoretically, by the way, Sally Hawkins would be the peach. But um, oh, you I mean, think? Well, if you want to get well, technical, yeah, yeah, technical yeah, about yeah, it, you really want to get technical. <laughs> well, but she's the aggressive. No, yeah, I don't know. The peach. He's I don't. the peach. There's a, there's a graduate thesis for somebody yeah. to write. All right. I'm in. So, <laughs> so we uh, have to shift gears here a little bit one more time and make some uh, recommendations. Oh, we have to take a break. That's what we have to do. We have to take a break and then we'll make some recommendations. Is it a video? Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. My producers and I have a really simple philosophy. We do things that interest us and that we think you'll find interesting. We don't have any other category. We, there, anything can be a show, including things that seem on the surface as though maybe they wouldn't make good shows. We take that as a challenge. So if you're here, I'm guessing maybe you've already figured that out. You like it. You recognize it as unique. Maybe you'll even donate to uh, help it make it possible. To do that, you can go to WNPR.com. Org, click on the Donate Now button, or you can call 1-800-584-2788. If you do all that stuff, thank you. And even if you just listen, thank you for that. After today's show, I will always be more careful about reaching into a mailbox. Do you like Brazilian music? Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with voiceover help in the intro by Kevin McDermott and Lori Mack. There are no flies on Amanda Fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Army Hammer. On Monday, new stuff about the Mueller investigation and the Olympics, as only we can report them. And now, back to Colin. 
All right. We're going to have to skip briskly through our recommendations and endorsements, but Rebecca, why don't you get us going? Okay. So as of this morning, Tank and the Bangas were added to the Newport Folk Festival lineup for this year. They won the Tiny Desk concert last year. Highly recommend checking that out. Hmm. Uh, amazing group, Tank and the Bangas. Um, my second recommendation is tonight I am seeing Rachel Bloom at the Fairfield Theater Company. Hmm. I know that uh, Teresa, I believe, endorsed Crazy Ex-Girlfriend before, but if you haven't seen it, it's really funny. If you like musical theater in any way and you have any appreciation for mental illness, highly recommend Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and the musical stylings of Rachel Bloom. Yeah, I've started watching it. It is a lot of fun. Jim, what have you got? Um, I, I've uh, recovering from uh, from pneumonia, and so I fully medicated. Uh, I was non-contagious. I'm not contagious now, by the way. Um, and I went to see the band's visit on Broadway, mm. and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, the musicianship is great. The acting is great. The whole... Uh, lack of grandeur is great, and I, I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, a little bit lazier, uh, but if you're hanging around, the Avid Brothers documentary, uh, May This Last, is, is really good. It made me like them. And then finally, my little sugar con- confection every day has been uh, Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, so I, I, I think I've even hounded you by email. I, I was already – I'm already on the Phoebe <laughs> Bridgers Right, right, right. Uh, so check out Phoebe Bridgers. She's a, a young song, singer-songwriter who is – Sort of pop, but devoid of of pop uh, trappings. Right. No, she's great. Yeah. Uh, I, I know the one that you like. I like Funeral, actually. It's right, my right. favorite. But anyway. I like, what is it called? Uh, emotion, uh, Something like that. Something. Anyway, Jacques, what have you got? Um, I just, just finished as I was driving over uh, the audio book for Lincoln and the Bardo and uh, by George Saunders. And uh, it is amazing. Uh, and I recommend it on audiobook because they have 166 performers on it. It's the most ever. Uh, and it's not like just a sheer case of numbers. It's it's the fact that it reads like a play. And it, it's so odd and interesting and fantastic. And anyway, I can't recommend it highly enough. The second thing that I would recommend um, based on Jim Chapdelaine coming back from a cruise with pneumonia is don't go on a cruise. <laughs> it is a floating Petri dish. Unless you're being paid to go. Then it, right. I have to say it's that not takes the it. It's not uh, worth it. So. <laughs> Only he can know that really. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I will uh, make a few musical recommendations. But since Jacques uh, did what he just did, I, I will also say the uh, audio version, audible books version of Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan is also terrific. It has three narrators. Norbert Leo Butts is one of them, uh, which makes it fun all by itself. I wouldn't say he's the best of the three, but he's he's in there uh, doing that. And um, I'm also simultaneously listening to uh, Zone of Interest, the Martin Amos novel, uh, which is uh, also pretty gripping. But I wanted to make musical recommendations because of Quincy Jones. The first one is Q's Juke Joint. This is an album that came out many years ago, probably in the early 90s. Uh, it is Quincy Jones producing all the people that he can get to come to the studio, which is everybody. I mean, for example, it opens with Let the Good Times Roll with um, uh, a series of juxtaposed vocals by um, Stevie Wonder, Bono, and Ray Charles. And it kind of continues in that vein from there. Um, I also, because uh, we apparently do like Brazilian music, will recommend the Sergio Mendes uh, um, album Timeless, where he works with a lot of contemporary American artists, especially the title cut Timeless with India Are. Uh, and this song, by, this is not from that. This is uh, from the artist Nara Liao. It's called Dies Cave Fui Por Ai. <laughs> 